like you to imagine with me what it must have been like to be one of the original 12 disciples. Can you just sit there for a minute and, and kind of let your mind go back to that and take that in for just a second. For three and a half years, you would have experienced things and seen things that were truly mind-blowing. You would have seen the blind healed, the lame made to walk, the dead raised to life. You would have sat with the ultimate teacher with unparalleled access to be able to ask him any question and never wonder if the answer was right. You'd know it. There would be a certain sense of comfort, I think, from walking with Jesus and being with him because you would know that he had the power to calm the storms in your life because you had literally seen nature obey his voice when he said, peace, be still. You would have seen him walk on water. You would have seen him deal with a demon-possessed man running naked in a cemetery in one moment. And then at the word of Jesus, sitting clothed and in his right mind in the next moment. All of these things, I think, would make it more personal and even more painful when Jesus gathered you together as a group of 12 disciples and said, I'm going away. I'm leaving. We would have all looked at Thomas just like I'm sure the other disciples did when Thomas asked almost incredulously, Lord, where are you going? What do you mean you're leaving? You can almost hear it in his voice when you read that in the Gospel of John. Where are you, what do you mean, where are you going? You can't leave. We've been waiting on this. Where, where are you going? And then Philip voiced what everyone else was thinking when he said, just show us the Father, that'll be enough. If we could just see the Father, we'll be satisfied. That, that would end it for us. And a few days later, he was gone, crucified. The worst form of death imaginable. Physically horrible to die by crucifixion, but it was also humiliating. Stripped of their clothing, criminals were placed on crosses and left to die by asphyxiation. When they didn't die fast enough, their legs were broken so they couldn't push up with their legs to be able to get another breath. And you weren't there because you were scared. When they buried him, you didn't see where the tomb was, but some of the ladies who had more courage maybe than the men came back and told the rest of you where he had been buried. And on the third day, your heart began to beat again when you heard he was risen because finally your belief in the Christ had been vindicated. Jesus was alive, but just a few short weeks later, he was talking to you again and now telling you it's time for me to go away. This time, not because he's going to die, but because he's going back to the Father. And Jesus gathers all of us together. And before he leaves, he says these words from Acts chapter 1, verse 6. I want you to turn to your Bibles in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, because I want you to see how Jesus framed the mission for his early disciples right as he was leaving. He gave them instructions for taking the gospel to the world, and I want us to see how these instructions are still leading us today as we work to see the gospel brought into all the world. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. 
gathered together, Jesus says this. When they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Gone. Vanished. He could have said so many things. He could have answered their most pressing question about the time period, about when the nation of Israel was going to be restored. They'd been waiting for this. They had hoped that Messiah was going to come and restore the nation of Israel. They were looking for that. And yet he says to them, that's not important. What's important to us, and and he, he could have told them at this moment the exact date of his return, but he says to them, that's not important. It's not important that you know any of these things. They're fixed by the Father. And as Jesus spoke these last words, I think there must be something for us to examine because Jesus never wasted words. He always spoke them clearly. He always spoke them powerfully. So we want to look at what he said to his disciples and make sure that we're following through with these last things that he told us to do. And the first thing that we see, and I think it's very important for us to understand, comes out of verse six because it has to do with God's timing. It's easy to feel pushed by time. I think we are always working to fit in more than our days than are humanly possible. And when we feel the pressure of deadlines and due dates, we start to feel like our calendars are running our lives instead of keeping track of the things that are going on in our lives. We spend so much of our time lamenting the fact that we don't have enough time to do what we want to do that we miss sometimes living in the present. And we don't understand time. We wonder what God's doing, why it's taking him so long to do what he's doing, why it's taking him so long to return. We wonder when he's going to answer our prayers or when he's going to finally move over these things that we have brought to him and we're waiting. But verse six gives us this huge insight. We may live on central standard time, but God lives on eternal time. And he says, it's not important for you to understand these times like you're asking for them to be understood. God sees the past, the present, and the future at once. He transcends time. And that's a a hard concept for us to to really wrestle with and and really grasp because we only see time really in the past. You don't really see it even in the present. You think that you do, but it's unfolding. We certainly can't see it in the future. And so we live with this wrestling all the time, trying to understand it. And yet the scripture says God's not in a hurry right now, nor has he ever been. The New Testament tells us that a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is a day to the Lord, meaning that it just doesn't matter to him in the same way that it does to us. Because when you see all of time as if the beginning of time and the end of time is here and you're able to step back and see it all, you don't have to be in a hurry to exact what you want to happen. You don't have to be in a hurry to come back because you're waiting for everything to be fulfilled as it should be fulfilled. And I point this reference out to us because we're waiting on the Lord to return right now. And we feel like sometimes that it's taking forever for him to do it. And we wonder, why don't you come back? Why don't you make this right And it's just like he says, because this seems like a long time to you, but it's a day to me. It's no big deal. I've got it. When you see all of eternity, your calendar's different. Some people have tried to tie this verse of it being a thousand days 
a thousand years is a day and a day is a thousand years. Well, that must mean that what he was talking about in creation, but I don't think that that's true. When God speaks about time, he's very specific. He told Moses, 400 years, then we're going to take you guys. Or he told Abraham, 400 years, your people will be enslaved and then they will be brought out of Egypt. He used Moses to do that. It was exact, 400 years. When he talks about creation and a day, when he uses that word, it's a day. But, but we have to understand what he's saying here is that this waiting on the Lord is something that people have been doing forever. We're always waiting on God. We're always waiting for his plan to unfold. And this means that if you've been waiting for a long time for God to move in your life, to answer a prayer, don't give up now. Keep petitioning the Father to move. Keep asking and seeking and knocking and waiting for him to do that. You wait on the Lord, and while you, redo, read, while you do that, the scripture says that you'll renew your strength. That there's something that happens in the waiting. And this is kind of like Jesus describing the plan by saying, here's what we're going to do. Sit tight. What kind of plan is that? This is what you have for us? You're going off somewhere and you just tell us to wait. But he's telling them to wait for God's plan to unfold. And the reason is, is the disciples couldn't possibly have known what was about to take place when the Holy Spirit entered their lives. When the Holy Spirit came upon them, they were going to be powerfully changed. And too many times we're ready to do something for God. We're waiting on God and we're, we're waiting for him to do something and we don't have the answer that we want and so we just jump in the pool neck deep and we don't understand why we're drowning and it's because God's like, I haven't told you to do anything yet. What are you doing? Wait. Be patient. Let this unfold. Let your eyes see what's about to happen. I don't want us to miss this. Because I've had to lean on this principle this very week, and you probably have too. Wait. Take a breath and wait. Wait for God to show himself. Wait for God to direct your path. Wait for God to show up and bring clarity to the situation. Don't jump ahead of him. Wait. What they were waiting for was something very important. Verse 8 tells us that it was the Holy Spirit. Something that we take for granted, but it wasn't for them. Verse 8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. They were waiting on the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit was key to the power. They hadn't had the Holy Spirit like we have the Holy Spirit because Jesus was walking among them. He was there, but Jesus said, I have to go away so that the Spirit can come. And when he comes, he'll come in power on you and you'll receive power. They were about to receive something that was the key to their power. I want you to think about this. Right before Jesus gives them this impossible mission, he tells them to wait because they need power. This was an impossible mission they were about to receive because they were literally just a bunch of fishermen. Think about what resources they might have had at their disposal. A couple of boats, small boats, some fishing nets. Oh, good news, they had a tax collector among them, Matthew. So that meant that they could understand the tax law. But unfortunately, there was no such thing as a tax-exempt status for a church. The only thing that they could expect from Rome was to be persecuted. That was going to be their status. They literally had nothing. And Jesus is telling them, you're going to go out and do all of this stuff. Wait. Their bank account was empty. They'd never been anywhere. They'd literally been operating in this small little area of Israel. This, this area is so small, maybe 10 miles. I mean, they haven't been anywhere. And Jesus is saying, wait, you're going to need power. I think the most dangerous thing for us as a church is to take for granted all the good things that God does in this world every day. 
and to start to rely on ourselves to complete his mission. You remember that last year, our Sunday morning speaker for Global Impact Celebration was a man named Greg Pruitt. His book, Extreme Prayers, is in the library of the church. I'd encourage you to check it out. But I want to quote for you something that just really stuck out in my mind this week as we were getting ready for this Sunday. Quoting from Greg, For example, if you make a great plan to reach your city with the gospel, but you fail to pray doggedly about it, the only compassionate thing for God to do is to doom your plan to failure so you won't swell with pride. Wait. Wait and rely on the power. The last thing that I want for God to do in our church is to remove his power from our church because we're just, hey, it's global focus time. We, this is what we do. It's global focus. We just show up. The money comes. The partners come. Everything's good. I don't have to engage. No big deal. I don't need to pray for these people. God's just going to do it. And then what happens? The only thing that God can do is to pull back and say, if that's how you guys want to act, man, let's just wait and see how you do it without my power. Because he won't share his glory with us. His glory is his alone. And so for us, we wait and we look to the power of the Holy Spirit because we want God to lead us. Just like Moses said, I don't want to go anywhere if you're not going with us. I don't want to do it. I want you to lead us, Lord. And so we say the same thing. We come to this global impact celebration and we start asking God to move because we want him to lead us to reach the lost, to serve those with less access to the gospel or no access to the gospel. We want to be on his agenda and we want to work with power. See, the key to the disciples wasn't a great budget or great advantages from the government. The key was the Holy Spirit's power in their lives. And once they received the power of the Holy Spirit, they were, unable to, they were, they were able to unleash a ministry that truly changed the world. And I want to remind us of this principle. If we have the best plan, and I do believe that we have a great plan for missions and evangelism. We certainly have more money than they had. We have more skills in the collective room probably than they have. We've traveled more and seen more of the world than they have. We're used to those kinds of things. But if we don't have the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can't move forward with the mission. It won't work. When you were saved by the Holy Spirit, it took up residence in your life. And he convicts and leads your life. For them, they had to wait for the Holy Spirit to rest upon them. We have to yield to the Holy Spirit day by day. It's the idea of yielding not to what I want to do, but to what the Holy Spirit is leading me to do in my life. And that's exactly where the power comes from. And as the Holy Spirit guides and directs our lives, we'll see the power that we need is within us because it's coming from the Holy Spirit leading us. Listen to what Jesus told them. It must have been overwhelming in verse 8. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the remotest parts of the earth. They were going to take the gospel around the world. And I know that must have seemed crazy to these fishermen from Galilee. They, they must have thought it was nuts that they were going to do that. They couldn't have even known where the remotest parts of the world were. There wasn't a world map. There was no globe like you have in your classroom at school. They couldn't have known that. They would have known Jerusalem. Everyone went there once a year for the Passover. They certainly would have known Judea. That was the surrounding area. They certainly would have known Samaria because they tried to avoid it every chance they could. They hated Samaria. They hated the Samaritans. They wanted to go around that area all of, their, all of the time. And when they traveled, they would go outside of their way to get out of Samaria. They hated that place. 
And now Jesus is saying, you might not like it, but you're going to go there and you're going to open up a ministry field there. And then you're going to go even further than that to places that you cannot possibly know to the remotest parts of the earth. I want you to think about that for a moment and let it sink in. Jesus was literally looking at them and saying, this whole thing is in your hands, folks. You got it. Wait for the Holy Spirit and then be my witnesses. You're going to tell them the things you have seen and heard. That's what a witness does. What have you seen? What have you heard? And you repeat that. And as we are witnesses of the gospel, as we are witnesses of Jesus Christ, everywhere that we go, we're witnessing to people, telling them of what we have seen and heard as we encounter them along the way. Every time I think about this passage of scripture, I think about a man that I met in the very first church that I ever served in. His name was John Wesley Garrett. John Wesley and Hazel were pillar members of the church, gone on to be with the Lord now. Uh, They were fascinating people who served in all facets of the church. They were willing to jump in and do whatever. By the time I got to the church, John Wesley had been affected by a stroke And you could tell it, but he was still ever involved and engaged in the ministry of the church. And one day he told me a story about the first time that he ever left the county that he grew up in. He was able to leave the county thanks to an all-expense-paid trip by the United States Army to a place called Normandy. First time he left the county, folks. D-Day plus two. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the first time you left Nashville would be to go to France? Can you imagine what that would be like? Can you imagine your eyes being opened like that? I never read this passage where I don't think about him because I think that must have been exactly what the disciples were feeling. What in the world? Remotest parts of the earth. Is that like Brentwood somewhere? Or is that all the way to Spring Hill? No kidding. You know, I mean, what would you have known? You wouldn't have known anything, right? These folks were regular people just like us. No better, no worse than we are. They were simply trying to follow the Lord to the best of their abilities. But what they had was the backing of the Holy Spirit. And as we move forward, if we were to look in chapter 2, we'd see that as Peter got up to speak, literally thousands of people started giving their lives to Christ because the power of the Holy Spirit rested upon him. It wasn't because of the plan. It was because the Spirit was leading them. I mentioned last week that we're a global-focused church. And that's not something that that we came up with. It's something that was given to us. But it follows an Acts 1-8 strategy because we believe some, some very important things about this. We believe that Jesus said you start where you're at. Now, this is very important. The light that shines the farthest shines the brightest at home. For us to say that we're gonna go do missions somewhere else but leave Nashville to go to hell is wrong. That doesn't work. Nashville is our mission field. Your neighborhood is your mission field. Where you work is your mission field. Where you play, it's your mission field. All of those things happen here. Then we go to kind of that surrounding area, the Judea. Then we move out into places sometimes that we might even say like the Jews would have. I don't want to go there. I I don't know those people. I'm not like them. And God says, go plant a field there. Open up the field of the gospel right there. And then we say, we'll take it to the ends of the earth. And so we believe that because Jesus gave us that, we continue to operate like that in the same way. 
We have a local team, a regional team, a national team, an ends of the earth team. And each of these teams is headed by a layperson, not a staff member. That's very important that you understand that. They make up our global focus executive team. They're the ones that decide if the missions that we're doing make sense for the purpose and plan we feel like God's given us. That purpose and plan revolves around three things. We partner with people who are like-minded, who want to plant churches, evangelize the lost, and disciple people. That's it. Now, what that means for us is that there are a lot of great ministries and opportunities that we say yes to. But it also means that there are a lot of great ministries and opportunities that we actually say no to because we believe that they don't fit church planting, evangelism, discipleship, and there's other people that can do that. That's totally fine. But that's our focus. And these four teams coordinate with our missionaries and our champions to determine the needs and set up trips. And I want you to meet these four team leaders. It starts with the local team. Justin Bennett's the leader of this team. His wife, Marianne, is a good lady. She happens to be my sister. And they've been involved in Global Focus from day one on a variety of our mission trips. Marianne's even been a champion for one of our mission trips that happens in Maryland. Uh, local team works with ministries like Begin Anew. They used to be called the Christian Women's Job Corps, but they can't call themselves that anymore because men started coming. Men said, hey, if this is good for the ladies, we need it too. And so what they do is they partner with people to give them life skills and training and education with the gospel. We've got a lot of people involved in that right now. Our ESL ministry is part of that uh, local team. Uh, we also have Legacy Mission Village, which is part of our local team. They work with refugee and immigrant populations here in Nashville. So you have opportunities right here in the city. You can be a missionary right here. You don't have to go anywhere. Because Jesus said, start where you're at. So that's what we're trying to do. To open up a field of the gospel right here and plant seeds so that we can, re uh, so that we can reap a harvest. The regional team is led by Daniel Boone. Daniel's been on many mission trips around the world, and if you're around him, his heart for missions is evident. It's infectious. He works with our disaster relief ministry to meet the needs of people at the point of crisis in their lives. They're meeting people when the tornado comes, as they bring chainsaw crews and rebuilding crews and cleanup crews. They also work with Lighthouse Christian Camp in Smithville, Tennessee, which serves underprivileged kids who get to go to camp for free. Every year they get to go to camp for free so that they can hear the gospel. And many of us have been to Lighthouse Christian Camp and served with them. If you go on a regional trip, that's about a half day's drive. That's kind of what we say is it's about a half day's drive outside the city. Then we have a national team and that is led by Joe Roberts. And I've got to just say this. Joe is the original Iron Man of missions. Joe has been the national team leader since Global Focus inception at Judson Baptist. And at any given week, you're likely to find Joe and Martha traveling somewhere to meet a church planter to see if they can partner with us all over the country. I, they're racking up more air miles than anybody. I'm telling you, they're going all over the, this, the country making sure that we have partners. This year, we're pursuing people in Los Angeles, Ann Arbor, Michigan, Greenville, South Carolina, Knoxville, Tennessee. Those are our church plants that are on the national team. And then our ends of the earth team. That's led by Beth Moore. Beth has literally lived around the world as a full-time missionary in some crazy places. Her life's pursuit has been to share the gospel with people all over the world, and she brings a lot of real-life experience to this team to help us with this. And she's leading work in places like Sudan and Honduras and France and England and Romania. 
And our goal in Global Focus is to partner with these like-minded ministries so that we can see people changed by the power of the gospel through church planning, evangelism, and discipleship. This means that there's a lot of opportunities for us out there, but it means that we're always looking for new opportunities as well. And if you're aware of a mission that we ought to be working with or a church planter that we ought to be working with, find one of these local leaders or, or the national leader or, or find me and, and say, hey, this is who we are and I'll put you in touch with the right person. You have to be willing to champion that. We have to have a champion for every ministry. But when we do that, some amazing things start to happen. We start working with people and engaging with them and as we go, we're having gospel engagements not only in Nashville, which is so important, but regionally, nationally, and around the world. Here's how this works. I want everybody, if you came in this morning, I want you to take this. It's in your bulletin. If you didn't get one this morning, you need to grab a bulletin before you leave today. This is important. Because we ask you to give, engage, and go. We have to give first. Now, you've done one thing in giving. You guys have already grabbed all of the things that we need for our partners. Remember what we talked about last week. On Sunday night, we'll be having the night of giving to the partners. It's going to be awesome. And in that night of giving, you bring those gifts back and give them to the partners to connect with them. Sunday morning, one week from today, we're endeavoring to raise $70,000 in a day. $70,000 in a day. And here's why we're doing that. David Nelms from the Timothy Initiative is going to be here and he's going to be speaking to us about what the Timothy Initiative is doing to plant churches. We've been partnered with them for a long time. They've, they've passed 50,000 churches. We celebrated that a few weeks ago. Here's the good news. If we raise $70,000, 233 churches will be planted just from this church body alone in North Africa and all over Asia. But even better than that, remember that they're in a, a grant from a donor. So if we raise 70, they get 140. That, that's what happens out of that. That means that we will say next Sunday alone, hey, almost 500 churches got planted because of this. It's crazy. So we want to show up ready to do that. You can give in the one-day offering next week or you can give by app. But then this is important right here, the faith promise. This is how we fund mission all year long. We ask you to go before the Lord and begin praying about this and say, what would you give through me to missions that you wouldn't just give to me. I had a great testimony this past week. Somebody stopped me and said, I just wanted you to know that God showed up in a major way and gave to our family something that we could have never uh, imagined. It was a number he told us to give and he showed up and gave it. Faith, promise, giving still works. Amen, it does. I I've seen it in my life. You've seen it in your life by now. This is so important because this is how we fund missions. Now, this is not your tithe. That goes to the church. This is not in lieu of your tithe. What we ask you to do is to anonymously, if you notice on this card, your name doesn't go on it anywhere. Why? Because it's faith. You pray about it. And if God would have you give something to missions this year, next week, you can bring that and put it in the offering plate and we'll actually take it up for the next three weeks, okay? And it's important that you do it. And some of you go, I don't need to put that in there. Yes, you do. Here's why. Because we build our budget with all of these partners based on these cards alone. They're relying in us on faith. We're relying on God to give through us in faith. And that's how it operates. So this becomes really important for us. And I want to tell you just something that I think will bless your heart today. Here are the numbers. I believe we started Global Focus in 2012. And since 2012, Judson Baptist 
has given $4.2 million to missions. $3.5 million went to our mission partners. $708,000 went to the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention. $411,000 went to Lottie Moon Missions Offering, Annie Armstrong Offering, and the Golden State Missions Offering. And I know that's always confusing. It's not California. We're actually, it's the Tennessee Offering is the Golden State, named for a, a, a church planter in Tennessee years ago, William Golden. Really important for us to see that. And for some of you who've been at Judson for a while, those numbers don't mean anything to you because you're like, yeah, it's just what we do. But I want you to stop for a second and let that sink in for, for just a moment. $4.2 million given to missions. That's incredible. It's unheard of. People don't operate like that. That's because I believe that the Holy Spirit grabbed our hearts in 2012 and opened our eyes and our perspective to what missions meant. And so for us, we may go, well, yeah, we expect to give a half million dollars to missions this year. Expect to give a half million dollars to missions. Think about what I just said. I'm expecting God to move in power in our lives and we'll sacrificially give and he gets the glory, right? And I don't tell you those numbers so that you'll be impressed with what we've done. Let's be impressed with what God's done because God gave it through us what he wouldn't give to us. Right? That's the point. So this year we come back and we're asking God again, what will you give through me that you wouldn't give to me? I believe that you guys will give sacrificially to missions because you have from the outset. You fund missions because it's close to your heart. You know what? That's the pattern we see in the early church. I want to read this to you from Acts chapter 4. Now Joseph, a Levite, a Cyprian by birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This early church began to give. They were taking what they had and they were giving it to make sure a couple of things happened. One, that nobody in their midst was needy. They wanted to make sure that they were taking care of people. They were funding mission as they went. And that's how we are fulfilling the, cry, the call of Christ on our lives right now. We're giving to missions. We're going. We're telling. Because we believe that heaven is our home. And we really want to take as many people with us as possible. And I, I say this to you again. That's why gospel engagements are so important. Folks, we're flatlining in gospel engagements right now. That number's not moving like it needs to. We've lost it a little bit. Listen to me. Every one of us engaging two people with the gospel a week gets our number where we need to be. We can't just run through our week and say, oh, I was too busy for the last four months to engage anyone with the gospel. I've got to bring somebody with me. I've got to leave a track when I eat. I've got to share with somebody. I've got to make sure that I get this done. We've got to take care of this. It's so important for us to do it. It starts right here and it overflows out of Nashville, Tennessee, into the region, into the nation, and ultimately around the world as we engage people with the gospel. Every seed that's planted, God does something with it. He's doing it. So I'm asking you to not lose sight of the mission this year. We want to give, we want to engage, we want to go. Next week, we really start the process of giving. The following week, you'll be able to start seeing how you can engage because as our partners show up on the 21st and the 22nd, I believe that God's going to move in your life. Now, this is a trick question. How many of you are already planning to be here on the 21st? Raise your hand, that's Saturday night. 
Now, the rest of you, we're going to just keep preaching until you get your hearts right and decide to get here. Listen to me. Listen to me. Don't blow this. Show up. Engage with these partners. You being here on the 21st is crucial. Be here. Because you're never going to go anywhere if you don't engage with them. You're never going to have an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to prick your heart and get you going. It's so important that we do this. Let's be ready to give, engage, and I believe what will happen is we'll go. And once we go and we start going, I'm telling you folks, there's nothing that God can't do when the Holy Spirit's leading us. It's important. Folks, the time is short. Of all the things that you could do Saturday or Sunday of next week, tell me this. How many of them are going to matter more in eternity than coming and engaging with those partners? What are you going to do next week that's going to move the needle towards heaven? What are you going to do next week that's going to allow someone to see the gospel come out of your life? Folks, the time is now. I want to close us in prayer. And I want to ask the Holy Spirit to guide and direct our lives. Father, we don't want to be ahead of your plan. And we don't want to just have a good plan. We want to take your plan and engage the world with the gospel. Father, would you let the Holy Spirit come out of our lives in power? Father, show us the importance of the mission. As we sang just a moment ago, Lord, don't let us become lazy, kind of just pursuing earthly things. Let us, Lord, have a heavenly focus. And I pray this week, Lord, that you would move in power. Father, would you call someone to missions? Would you raise up an army of short-term mission volunteers? Would you raise up an army of prayer warriors? Would you raise up an army of people who will engage? And Father, would you help us to give again this year to fund your mission? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.